0: All right, if you've got your uh, notebooks, turn to page 41. And we'll be reading in just a second uh, chapter 3 of Esther. Um, this morning, uh, the, the lesson, I've, I've called it The Hatfields and the McCoys. And uh, there's a reason for that, because chapter 3 is going to introduce a feud, uh, kind of a family feud, a long-standing family feud. And from everything I know about the Hatfields and McCoys, uh, it was a long-standing feud between two families in Kentucky and West Virginia. And you're gonna see that take place in the story today. So chapter one, we saw week one, was an introduction to Ahasuerus, the king. Powerful, wealthy, loved to party. Um, Reigned over a kingdom that stretched all the way from Ethiopia to India. 127 different provinces. He was incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, um, the greatest sovereign of his time. And then last week we met um, Esther and Mordecai, two cousins. Mordecai had adopted Esther. We also saw Esther, this Hebrew girl, become the next queen of the greatest nation in the world at the time. And now this week, we're going to meet a third character, which is going to introduce us to this this feud. Now, what I want us to kind of wrestle with as we go through this this week is the idea that there's a battle going on, there's struggles going on in my life and in your life, and sometimes we get a little bit myopic and we think about my problems, my, my cares, my world, my worries. And we lose sight of the fact that as Christians, we're part of a much greater battle than just the one I'm particularly going through. Um, And there's a reason behind everything, everything you go through, everything I go through, but there's a greater reason than just your personal comfort or your personal little world. And and we're going to see that in this story the further we get into it. It's not about Esther. It's not about Mordecai. It's about the people of God and the will of God and the mission of God. It's a much bigger thing. And sometimes we lose that perspective. So as we read through it and as we study through it over the next weeks, keep that in mind. Here's our definition of providence for this week. It's in your notes. The providence of God is most vivid in the everyday life and work of Jesus. But his death and resurrection are the summits and the manifestations of God's loving care of Jesus' unshakable, and of Jesus unshakable trust in God. The providence of God embraced the whole story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Now, when I read that the first time, it I, I guess I've never thought about um, providence as it relates to Jesus. And, and that may sound stupid on my part, but I always think of providence in terms of me. You know, providence in terms of the world. And, and yet, if you look at the life of Jesus, what he's telling us is you see the hand of God, the providence of God, the plan of God all over the life of Jesus. From his birth, his incarnation, all the way to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he says the the death and resurrection are kind of the summits. They're the two kind of twin peaks of God's plan for this individual's life, Jesus Christ. And we don't think about that very often. We don't really think about the life of Jesus and providence as it relates to him. That everything along the journey of Christ's life from his incarnation all the way to his ascension was under the control of the providence of God. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beatings, the ridicule the wedding at Cana, you know, all the miracles, every, everything was part of the providence of God, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so if it's true of Jesus, it's also true of us. Providence controls the everyday affairs of our lives. Think about Jesus in these terms. Think about the conflicts he had in his life when he walked on this earth. And, and there were a lot of them. He had Jesus against Herod, right? The original Herod who tried to have him killed with all the other babies when he found out that Jesus was, was, had been born. So you had Jesus against Herod. You had Jesus against Satan. All, all the point, From the point of his beginning of his ministry and the temptations in the wilderness all the way through his ministry up into the cru- crucifixion, who was standing against him and fighting against him? Satan. So there was this conflict going on. Then he goes on to Jesus and the Pharisees. You see, as you read through the gospels, the constant battle of words between the Pharisees and Jesus, they were constantly coming to him and trying to trick him, trying to accuse him, accused him of being a a blasphemer, accused him of being the son of Satan, a drunkard, a friend of sinners. They were always against him to the point of they were eventually reaching the point of trying to kill him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him eliminated. So all through his life, conflict. How about Jesus and Judas? We don't typically think of that as a conflict because Judas was one of the disciples and he walked with Jesus and he listened to Jesus. But there was a conflict going on behind the scenes between Jesus and Judas that culminates in his betrayal. That many believe that Judas did believe that Jesus had come to be the Messiah, but was frustrated that he wouldn't hurry up and bring it about. And so he tried to force his hand by betraying him. I don't know that I believe that, but I think there was definitely something within Judas that was frustrated with the way things were going. And so he took matters into his own hand. There was a conflict and his betrayal of Jesus led to eventually his crucifixion. How about Jesus and the high priest? You go all the way to the trials and the high priest who accused him of blasphemy and who wanted him taken to the Romans because he knew the Romans were the only ones who could kill him. Conflict. And then ultimately Jesus and the Romans who were the ones who eventually put him on the cross and put him to death. It was the Romans. So all throughout his life, there was conflict. And and you're going to see that in this story as we move into it. You know, last week we saw this kind of incredible situation where Esther, this unknown young Jewish girl, becomes the queen of the greatest empire in the world at the time. And it's going to go south really quick. It's it's suddenly her life's going to be full of conflict. She's living in the palace. She's powerful. She's now suddenly incredibly wealthy, she's got everything she wants in terms of comfort and convenience, but her world's going to get rocked really fast. Conflict's going to come in, just as it did in Jesus. And all of the conflicts in Jesus' life, it's important for us to understand, was part of God's plan for his life. And see, that's really hard. I, I can read that, and I can say that, and I can think about that, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that when it comes to Jesus' life. I just don't like it in my life, just like you don't like it in your life. So when conflict comes into my life, what do I usually do with it? I try to escape it, do something about it, blame God for it, ask him to change it, get rid of it. But rarely do we say, thank you for it, because we don't fully understand, don't want to understand that it's part of his plan for our lives, just like it was for Jesus' life. It was part of God's providential plan for the life of Christ to go through what? Suffering. Had Jesus not gone through suffering, guess what? We wouldn't be here. Had Jesus not died on my behalf and on your behalf, we wouldn't be here. Suffering was part of the plan. So let's read chapter 3 and let's see what happens in the life of Esther. And if you want to look on page 41, you can uh, read along in your notebook, and you can also write in there if you don't like to write in your own personal Bible. But here we go. After these things, this chapter starts exactly like chapter 2, this idea of timeliness. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So just... Suddenly, just out of nowhere, we get introduced to this guy named Haman. And what I'd like you to do is, as you read through this with me, take your notebook and, and mark anything that has to do with his sovereignty, with advancement, promotion, power, as it relates to Haman. Because that's going to be important as we move along. So here's this guy, Haman. The king promotes him, he advances him, he sets his throne above all the officials who were with him. So not only has Esther been promoted, here's this guy getting promoted about the same time. And all the king's servants, verse two, who were at the king's gate, bowed down. Now who do we know is at the king's gate from chapter two? Mordecai. He sits at the king's gate. He's some kind of official. So all all the servants of the king bowed down and paid homage to to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So he discloses that I'm a Jew, but he didn't really explain why he wasn't bowing down. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. And this is going to be really important. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Talk about overreaction. You know, the guy won't bow down. Well, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And, and, and he follows through on it. He vows to kill all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Now notice what he doesn't tell the king. He doesn't say what people this is. He doesn't say it's Jews. He just says, there's a certain people. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, so do with them as it seems good to you. So what is the king giving to Haman? Carte blanche. Do whatever you want to do. Here's my signet ring, it's the power. So you do whatever you want to with these people. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Why? Because his kingdom went from India all the way to Ethiopia. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So not only kill them, take everything they have. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. What an interesting contrast, right? Hey, I got this idea. I want to get rid of these people because they're a threat to your kingdom. I want to wipe every single one of them out. Hey, here's my ring. Do whatever you want. They issued the decree, and then he and the king sit down to have some drinks. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, you've got to keep in mind that the Jews who were living in Susa and really throughout the province of Persia, it was a pretty um, tolerant environment. They really didn't have a problem with the Jews being there. The Jews were not really under duress at this point in time. There were, again, Ethiopians, Indians, there were people from every nationality living in that area at the time. And so that's why the city's kind of thrown into confusion. What in the world is going on? It was probably likely that most people had a friend who happened to be Jewish or knew a family that was Jewish and to suddenly hear this decree and say that everybody's going to be wiped out. And part of what the decree was saying is this was not going to be done by soldiers. This was going to be done by the people. That'd be like if suddenly a decree went out here in America that we were going to kill, kill a certain, we're going to kill all Muslims, let's say. We're just going to get rid of all Muslims. They're a threat. And guess who gets to do it? You. So you have a Muslim coworker, a Muslim neighbor, and you, it's your job. Whenever this date happens, you got to go do it. I think you would be confused. I think you would be, What? I can't, why me? What's going on? So the people are in confusion. The king and Hazarus are sitting down having drinks. There's a certain cavalier nature to this story. So, So you see immediately there's a conflict, okay? Esther's queen. Mordecai sits at the king's gate, refuses to bow down to Haman, and suddenly all heck breaks loose. Why? What's going on here? What's the feud that's about to take place? Well, after these things, as the chapter starts out, just tells us that after Esther becomes queen, after Mordecai sees the plot against the king's life and reveals it to the queen, and she reveals it to the king, and the two guys are killed, after those things, this is what happens next. You have Haman this individual who pops into the scene, the story, <coughs> just out of nowhere, who is he? Well, obviously he's important, right? Because he just got the king to issue this incredible decree that we know, based on the situation that happened with Queen Vashti in chapter 1, his decrees are what? Irrevocable. Once the, the decree is signed, the signet ring is affixed to it, it cannot be changed even by who? The king himself. So this decree goes out and it is a done deal. And what we know just from studying the dates is that it, it is about a year away. So the date is, is out there. So there's a year that the Jews are going to have to wait for this date. Can you imagine that? If you, if you knew that a year from now you and your family were going to be wiped out and you just have to kind of live in waiting for it. That's what's happening in this story. So who's Haman? He's obviously important and his role is providential. Now see, this is where we can have problems with the providence of God because we don't want to think that Haman was being providentially used by God to accomplish something by God for the glory of God. But if you read the rest of the story, you're going to see that God was all over this. God was doing something using this man to accomplish the greater good and the greater will of God. He shows up, he gets promoted. We're not told why he gets promoted, but the first few verses say he was promoted by the king, he's advanced by him, he sets his throne above all the other officials. Why? We don't know. He's a foreigner. He's an Agagite. He's, he's not a Persian, so why does this guy get chosen? We're not told. But providentially, Haman gets promoted, just like providentially, who else got promoted? Esther. And so it creates this immediate conflict. We're told he's an Agagite. He's an Amalekite. Agag, Agag was an Amalekite. Why is that important? Well, it's, it's why I called this the Hatfields and the McCoys because the Amalekites and the Benjaminites, that's easy to say, were enemies. And we're going to find out why. Who is a Benjaminite? Mordecai. We saw that in chapter two. So suddenly you have these two individuals, both foreigners, both living in Susa in the capital of Persia, coming into conflict. What's going on? And it's it's the reason I believe this is a providential conflict, not a personal conflict. See, the Amalekites were long-standing enemies of Israel. How did that come about? How did they become the enemies of the Benjaminites? How did that come about? Why was that an issue? And isn't it interesting that here's Mordecai, who just happens to be from the tribe of Benjamin, and here's Haman, who happens to be an Amalekite, being put literally face-to-face into conflict. He gets promoted. He walks out. Everybody's supposed to bow. Who's the only person who won't bow? A Jew who happens to be the cousin of the queen who happens to be a Benjaminite. He will not bow down to him. And I think that's the reason he wouldn't bow down is because he was an Amalekite. He's an enemy of my people. There's no way in God's green earth I'm going to bow down to this guy. I don't think it had anything to do with a respect for God as much as it was a personal issue between Mordecai and Haman. He's an Amalekite. But yet God is working behind the scenes, and he's going to set up this confrontation between these two men that's going to lead to something far greater and far more um, long-lasting than either one of them could ever imagine. And see, sometimes I think as, as we read this story, as we think about it, sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture and we sit there and go, well, why am I having to go through this? Why did this happen to me? Usually the answer is, I don't know. I don't have a clue, but God does. And you don't know the end of the story. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know the grand story or the grand plan that God may have for your life. All you do is you get myopic and you start staring down at whatever is confronting you right here, right now in this time period. And you don't think about the larger picture of God. And that's exactly what these two guys are going to do. They're going to get focused on themselves, but God behind the scenes is setting up a much greater confrontation they're even aware of. So we're not going to turn there, but if you want to read the story of what's going on and how this whole thing came about, it begins in Exodus chapter 17, when the Israelites are, have left Egypt and they're moving to the promised land, and the Amalekites attack the Israelites while they're on their way. Joshua defeats them. Okay. That's important. And then God pronounces a curse on them because why? They attacked his people. And here's what it says. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Those are the words of God. I will blot them out. I curse them because of what they did. In verse 14 of chapter 17 of Exodus, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, isn't that interesting? Because he says, I'm going to blot you out. Sounds pretty immediate to me. But then he says, you're going to have war from generation to generation. He didn't say when he's going to blot him out. He said, it's going to happen. But in the meantime, guess what? The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So there's this conflict between God, who represents and is the... King of the people of Israel and the people of Amalek. Skip up to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We see the next kind of chapter in the story. Saul is crowned king. Remember the people demanded a king. We went through the period of the judges and the people come out of that. They've been rebellious over and over and over again. And they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king just like all the other nations. Samuel gets mad. God says, hey, don't get get upset. I'm going to give him a king just like they asked for. I'm going to give him a king just like all the other nations. I'm going to give him Saul. Saul was a Benjaminite. Saul is the king of Israel. He will prove not to be a very good king. And one of the things that gets him into trouble is that God commands him to wipe out Amalek and the Amalekites. Here's what he says. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, I want you to to look at the specifics of this command. Do not spare them, kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel and donkey. He's very specific. He says, wipe them out. Get rid of them. He also says, don't take any of their plunder. Destroy it. Well... What happens? Saul doesn't obey. He spares Agag. Remember who is Haman? He's a descendant of Agag. He spares Agag and he keeps the spoil. So, what does God do? God replaces him as king. He basically says, I'm done with you. I'm tired of you. I'm disappointed with you. And I'm going to remove you. I'm going to replace you with a man after my own, own heart. And he eventually replaces him with who? David. But see, all of this sets up what's happening in chapter 3 of the book of Esther, because you have Haman, a descendant of Agag, and you have Mordecai, a descendant of Benjamin, and thus a descendant of Saul, coming to loggerheads. See, there's a greater battle going on here than just these two men. And it goes all the way back into the early portions of the Scriptures, It tells us that Haman gets advanced. We don't know why. He gets his throne placed above all the officials in the land. And everybody bows down except who? One man, Mordecai, who happened to be a Jew, who happened to be from the tribe of Benjamin, and he will not bow down. It is a feud of epic proportions. If you just read the chapter like we did, it just seems like it's going to be a feud between who? Haman and Mordecai. But we just read what's Haman's reaction? I'm going to kill all the Jews. Where did that come from? He's an Agagite. He is a descendant of the Amalekites. There is a hatred between these people, and so when he saw this man, this Jew, refused to bow down, he didn't just see him. He saw the people of Benjamin, the Jews. And he said, you know what? I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to wipe them out. This was a much greater issue than appears at first blush. And it's going to escalate. So you have Mordecai, Jew, Benjamite. He's a descendant of King Saul. He refuses to bow down. And Haman is furious. He's beside himself. Now, you're going to see as the story goes on that Haman had an ego problem that was like epic. I mean, this guy was all about Haman. He just—he was, he was the consummate ladder climber. He wanted to get to the top and he would do anything to get to the top. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later on that he, he aspired to be king. He wanted power. He wanted influence. And so when anybody has an ego and somebody flaunts or, or frustrates that ego or refuses to bow down to that ego, what does that ego do? It, it responds, right? It, hey, who do you think you are? I'm Haman. I'm the second most powerful man in this, this kingdom. And so he, he gets angry. He's filled with rage. And he sought, as a result, not just to destroy one man. I'm going to kill all the Jews. Now, we can look at that and we can go, well, that's, man, this guy's got a problem. Well, yeah, he's got a problem. But see, there's something else going on, right? There's, God is doing something. And if I just look at Haman and if I just look at his reaction, his overreaction, I can simply say, well, man, that stinks, where is God in that? How did God let this guy get promoted to the second most powerful position in the land, have influence over the king, get his signet ring, and be able to put out a decree that is going to wipe out every Jew living in the provinces of Persia? How could God let that happen? Well, first and foremost, God did let it happen. Providentially let it happen. And God had a reason behind it far greater than anything we recognized, they recognized, when it happened. And that's the thing we got to start looking for is what could God be doing that I don't yet see? Because here's what's true about God all the time. In every generation, in every era, God has a plan. God is working. And as I said last week, he's never caught off guard. He's never up in heaven, wringing his hands, looking down, going, Gosh, I turned my back, and look what happens. Where did Haman come from? How did, how did this happen? How did these two guys meet? Oh my gosh. Mordecai, why didn't you bow down? No, God was up in heaven, and he was orchestrating all of this. Why? To accomplish something incredibly great, that would bring glory to him. So here's the issue for me and the issue for you. I hate conflict. I don't expect it, and I certainly don't accept it when it comes. I don't like conflict in my life. I don't like family conflict. I don't like financial conflict. I don't like personal conflict. I don't like conflict. I don't like sickness. I don't like trials. I don't like temptations. I don't like any of that. But guess what? It's part of living on this planet, and it's most certainly part of being in a Christian, and it's not an anomaly for us as Christians. And yet as Christians, sometimes we think, well, wait a second, I, I'm a Christian, why am I struggling? I'm a Christian, why is my marriage having problems? Well, nine times out of 10, your marriage is having problems because you're in it, Okay. It's just reality. You have a personality. You have a will. You have words that come out of your mouth. You have things you say you'll do and you don't do. Your wife has the same issues. But trials are part of life, and trials are certainly part of the life of a Christian. And yet for us as Christians, the difference between my trials and a non-believer's trials is my trials are where God shows up. Their trials are where they have to show up. They have to fix it. They have to deal with it. They have no hope. They have no future. They don't know what's going to happen. But guess what? Every time I have a trial in my life, a difficulty in my life, who's always there? God. And God will use the trial to mold me and make me into the likeness of his son. It's not an anomaly. It's part of living the Christian life. Conflict comes with life. Look at the life of Jesus. Did Jesus have conflict? Yes, His entire life, and it led to his death. Why should I expect anything differently? This passage from 2 Chronicles, listen to what it says. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. See, the battle shouldn't surprise us. The war, the conflict shouldn't surprise us. We should have confidence that, you know what, the battle's there, but guess whose battle it is? It's really God's battle. And what Mordecai should have learned... Was that when this happened between he and Haman, he he should have realized that this is not my battle. This is God's battle. And it goes back generations. And what did my God say? I will wipe out Amalek. And I'm going to trust my God. I don't know when it's going to come. But guess what? I'm going to trust my God. How about this one? Chapter 32, verse 8. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? That God will fight your battles for you? I'll be real honest. There's way too many times in my life where I I can assent to that mentally, but I don't believe it in my heart, and I certainly don't live like I believe it because I take on the battle myself. I try to take care of it myself. And I don't lean on the Lord, and I don't think of the bigger picture, and I don't realize that God has something far greater that he's trying to do than I have a clue about. All I want is the battle to be over. I just want it to get fixed. I want my enemy to be defeated. I want to win. I want to have the victory. I want to have peace in my home. I want to have financial stability. I want good health. Whatever it may be that you think you want, God has something far greater that you need. And he's going to use the battle to reveal to you that, guess what? The battle is mine. Trust me. The battle in this story is not Mordecai's. The battle is God's. Because what's going to happen in this story is that Haman is the second most powerful person in the land. And he has the authority, the full authority of the king to decree the death of every Jew, including Mordecai. And we're going to find out, including the queen. He has that power. What can Mordecai do to stand up to that kind of power? Nothing. But what can God do? Everything. See, the battle is the Lord's. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us. So King Ahasuerus promotes Haman. He advances him, puts him on this throne, and it sets up some inequity. See, not only is there conflict in this life as a Christian, there's gross inequity. Sometimes the enemy seems to win. Sometimes the enemy seems to prosper, right? We see people who we know don't serve God, that don't believe in Jesus Christ as their savior and they seem to do extremely well and don't seem to have much conflict. Well, Ecclesiastes tells us in this life good people are often treated as though they were wicked and wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. But it's the way life is sometimes, right? You look around and you go, "How why did he get the promotion?" He's a jerk. He, he's, he doesn't even believe in God. Here I am. I'm faithful. I go to church. I, I go to a band of brothers. I, I read my Bible. I pray, and yet he gets the promotion. He gets elevated, and I don't. What's, what's up with that? How come the wicked seem to prosper? How about Jeremiah? Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you, so let me bring this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? Now What a great question. And you've probably asked it in one way or another of God, you know, why does he he get to succeed? Why does that jerk seem to get all the glory? Why why do they seem so happy and they don't even know the Lord? See, with this conflict that's going on in in the heavenly realms that happens to impact my life and your life, there is going to be inequity. There's always going to be what? A Haman. Always. Always. There's always going to be a Haman. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We should recognize that it's part of living on this planet. There will always be a Haman. And so Haman does this thing of casting lots. Now, this is an interesting thing for you and I because we're, we're not familiar with it. We don't really understand it. It seems kind of mystical. But basically, it was like taking these stones that they would cast, and they were somehow able to read them. We don't fully understand how lots work, but even the Jews used lots. It was a way of getting divine input, decisions. And so he's not a follower of Yahweh, but he believes in some kind of gods. And so he casts lots. He has lots cast over a period of time, over and over again, like rolling dice, trying to get an answer, a word from the divine. And he's looking to his gods to tell him what to do. He's not looking for his gods to tell him whether or not to kill the Jews. He's already made that decision. See, what he's doing is what you and I do with our prayer lives. We make a decision. I'm going to take this job. I'm going to buy this car. I'm going to buy this house. And then we say, Lord, bless my decision. That's all, he, all he's looking for is a date. That's all he's looking for. He's not looking for God to say, his God to say, no, 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 I wouldn't kill the Jews. I've already made that plan. Just tell me what day. He wants to know what day. So they cast lots day after day, and a date is chosen. And it sounds like, because it says casting lots, it sounds like it's a chance issue, but it has nothing to do with chance. Because God is sovereign. God is providential. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What? God gave him the date? Yeah. God gave him the date to kill the Jews? Yeah. How far out was the date? A year. It could have been the next day, but it was a year. And you can sit there and go, well, why in the world would God pick a date for the destruction of the Jews? Because guess what? If you haven't read the rest of the story, the Jews don't get destroyed. He had a date... But he didn't have any authority other than the signet ring of the king to to accomplish what he was setting out to accomplish. Because whose authority did he not have? God's. You want a date? Here's a date. And that date's going to be really significant. Not only that it's a year away, but because of the day that it falls on. But it's a date that's given by God for the destruction of the people of God. So that God can save the people of God, His way, on His terms, and reveal His power. So it says, this is from the Net Bible, in the first month, that's, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Hazor's reign, pure, that is Lot, <coughs> was cast before Haman in order to determine a day and a month. It turned out to be the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. That's going to be important. It's the thirteenth day of the twelfth month. The edict was issued on the 13th day of the first month. You're probably going, who cares? What's the point? It's one day before the celebration of Passover. What's Passover? Passover is a celebration. It's a commemoration of what God had done for the Israelites, rescuing them from where? Israel. Haman's edict is calling for their annihilation on a particular date. What date was chosen according to God? The day before Passover. So the day the Israelites would be celebrated, the day before they're going to celebrate Passover, is the day they're going to be destroyed. You don't think that date kind of hit a chord with the Israelites when they got the news and read the edict, or had it read before them and it said, on this day you will be wiped out as a people the day before they were going to celebrate their deliverance by God generations before. And I guarantee most of them probably going, God, this stinks. We're not going to get to have Passover. Where's our God? What's going on? God was very specifically picking the very date for their destruction, not because he wanted them destroyed, but because he wanted to show them that I'm still the same God who rescued your ancestors from Egypt, and I can rescue you in Persia because I'm God. So letters are sent all over the provinces that they should be destroyed. Now, again, look at the wording. To destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, youth to elderly, both women and children, On a particular day, namely the 13th day of the 12th month. Remember when we read about God's command to Saul to kill the Amalekites? What did he tell them? Kill every woman, kill every man, kill every child. Saul was disobedient, didn't follow through. And now this edict goes out that says now every Jew is going to be killed. Every man, every woman, every child on a particular day. The day before Passover. See, we can read that and we can think, golly, where is God? What's God doing? God, wake up, come on, smell the coffee. Where what are you? God's fully aware of what's going on. God knew all about Haman. I think God was behind the promotion of Haman, just as he was behind the promotion of Esther. God's behind the date being chosen by lots because God controls even that. And yet, in all of this, we're we're given this this little line at the very end of chapter three. It says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink. What does that that convey to you? What's the image it puts into your mind? Flippancy, arrogance, control. Well, we've had a busy day, Haman. Got a lot accomplished, got an edict out. We're going to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. This is great. Let's drink, let's have a toast. What do these two idiots not understand? That there is a God in heaven who's so much more in control than they are. See, we, worry, we look at people and we think, you know, that guy's a loser. That guy's not even a believer. That guy's got power. He shouldn't have power. That guy's got control. He's, and we, we grieve and we fret and we worry and we forget that, you know what? He has no control because God's in control. This battle is God's. This battle is not Haman's. This battle is not Ahasuerus's. This battle is not Mordecai's. It is God's. And I love this from Psalm chapter 13, just for its bluntness. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Do you not think Mordecai prayed this prayer? When he read that edict and heard what was going to happen, we're going to see next week that he definitely reacted to it, and he went immediately to who? His cousin, who happened to be the queen, and he's going to beg her and demand that she do something about this because she's the only one that has power to do it, he thinks. See, again, don't put Mordecai on a pedestal because Mordecai doesn't, he'll, he'll mourn, he'll fast, but it doesn't say he prayed, and doesn't say he turned to God, he turns to who? Esther. He's looking for earthly power to solve what is really a heavenly conflict, and that's something you and I have to remember. Habakkuk says the same thing, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to say, have you ever felt that way? Yes. I have felt that way, and I've got to remind myself, and you have to remind yourself, and we have to remind one another that God is still in control. God is sovereign. He is providential. This is not out of his control. It's part of his plan, his providential plan for my life and your life and the people of God. I don't get it. I don't necessarily like it, but guess what? He knows what he's doing, and we're going to see that as we move through this story. So here are your questions for this morning get ready. What is your typical reaction when conflict shows up in your life? How do you think God would have you view it? When conflict comes into your life, financial, relational, health, any kind of conflict, how do you typically react? Anger, frustration, maybe prayer, not a bad reaction, but how do you react? How would God have you react based on what we've read just so far? Why do personal attacks or the seeming inequities of life make us question God's character and or involvement in our lives. In other words, when you see somebody who's not a believer succeed, somebody gets promoted over you, or you get attacked personally or accused of something you didn't do, why do we, why do we take that and we think, where's God? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? When are you, you going to get busy? When are you going to get involved? See, here's what I think we do is we think, okay, I know the solution to this problem. Get rid of that idiot and put me in his place because I'll be a better vice president. (laughs) Lord, I know the problem. My financial problem is I don't have enough money. Give me more money. And that's what we pray. And then when God doesn't give us more money or get rid of the idiot we want to replace, we get angry at God and go, what do you think you're doing? But see, we don't know the bigger picture. We don't know what God may be trying to teach us about our pride our arrogance, our lack of dependence on him. Thirdly, discuss all the ways you see God at work behind the scenes in this portion of the story of Esther. How should that encourage you today? See, don't don't read this story and go, boy, that's an interesting story. Read it with an eye looking at yourself and go, if this is true of Mordecai, if this is true of Haman, of Esther, of Ahasuerus, what's true for me? Is my God involved in what's going on in my life right now? How how should it change the way you look? So these are your three questions. As always, if you don't get through them all, that's great. If you want to spend time on one, wonderful. Start wherever you want. But guys, as always, be honest, open, gracious, because you're not all going to agree. And let God continue to direct you as we go through this series into how to see God in the everyday affairs of your life. And trust him that he is in control. Father, I pray for these guys. I pray that you would bless the time around the tables. Use them. Encourage them. Change them. Challenge them. Lord, make them uncomfortable with how they view you and how they view life. And I pray that each of us would get a bigger idea of what's going on in this world. And it's not all about us. It's about you. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Have fun, guys.